Well, we come this morning to the last of these five studies of the uh, book of Esther. Next week I uh, plan to start a new series on the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. But this morning, let's turn to Esther and uh, chapters 7 to 10. And let me read the opening four verses of Esther 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what's your petition? It will be given you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And Queen Esther answered, If I found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If it merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Right? We come to the final denouement of this extraordinary episode in human history. And perhaps the triumph of good and the judgment of the wicked always comes as a sort of anticlimax. But the alternative, you remember, would have been a holocaust of unimaginable horror. The seed of the serpent would have wiped out the seed of the woman. First thing I want you to see is how justice triumphed in Babylon, even in Babylon, and at a time of obvious spiritual declension among God's people, justice did prevail. The powers that be are ordained of God. Paul says of the civil magistrate, he is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So the place where the wheels of judgment then begin to turn is a banquet in the royal palace. And there are three people present. That's all. A little tea party. A cosy tete a tete. And they're sharing a glass of wine together. Xerxes, his wife, Esther, the queen, and Haman, the prime minister. The king had been led tantalizingly by Esther for two days and now he insists on knowing why did she stand uh, just outside the, the entrance door, uh, hoping that uh, he'd catch her eye and that he would extend the scepter to her and invite her in? And then it was only to invite him to a banquet? Surely more than that. Another banquet? Surely more than that. She has to tell him. And he'll hold back nothing, he says, nothing that she decides. Half the kingdom, you know, royal flannel, he spreads out in front of her. And so she begins. She begins reverently. She doesn't call him Xerxes. She doesn't have a, a, a pet name for him. Her husband. If I have found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quieter because no such distress should justify disturbing the king. You see her, her wisdom now. You see how she emerges from just being a, a sort of bimbo at the beginning. 
to now uh, showing character and leadership. She pleads first for her own life. Somebody wants to kill me. But you have the power to save my life. And then she pleads for her people. The king is offering her half the kingdom. There's no interest in half the kingdom at all. She wants preparations for the coming holocaust to be abandoned. And then she speaks so artlessly and uh, with even more respect. She says something like this. I wouldn't have mentioned this, this uh, rather nasty business if it, uh, if it was merely that we were going to be sold into slavery. If every man, woman and, and child in the race to which I belong was to be set on a block in the cities of Susa and Babylon and sold to the highest bidder if families were going to be broken up, uh, husbands and wives, parents and children not to see one another again. Well, if knowing about that and having to change that would disturb you, if it would disturb you, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have dared to have told the king about that. I wouldn't have bothered to mention it. But our enslavement is, is not under consideration. They have plans not to put us on sale and uh, put the money in your treasury. But actual dispatches have gone out to the length and breadth of your vast empire. Oh, king. And, and the wording is to destroy annihilate me and my own race she quotes from chapter 3 and verse 13 it's brilliantly done the king's eyes you can see them popping out with astonishment someone was planning to murder his gorgeous new bride and all her family who is he where is the man who's dared to do such a thing that's what Xerxes asks and uh, Esther says uh, the adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. Adversary, enemy, vileness, Haman. Haman's terrified before the king and queen. Walks out. You know, it's a great uh, dramatic gesture. Leaves the mayor. Haman realizes he's a goner. He's as good as dead. And he pleads with Esther. He falls. He's so weak. He falls on the couch. And at that moment, the king comes back in and... Uh, he uh, chooses to believe that uh, Haman is trying to violate his wife. King's servants put a bag over his head and he's led away to the gallows that uh, Haman has uh, erected to hang Esther's beloved father, adopted father, Mordecai. And then we're told that in the death of this evil man, in the judgment that comes upon him, in his destruction, peace returns to the king. His anger is placated. Now that scene is a very, very wonderful illustration of what the Bible means by the word propitiation. It means appeasing, placating the wrath of a judge who hates wickedness. The word is applied to the, the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is angry with the wicked every day. Well, how can he be reconciled to us? Because we've all, we are all sinners. There's none righteous. No, not one. Well, the wonderful answer that the Bible gives is that God has sent his own spotless son, Jesus Christ. That he's come and he's come 
to stand in our place. That's why he's come. He bears our guilt and our sin. And he is punished completely. Not for his own sins, because he had none at all. But for ours. It pleased the Lord to bruise him on Golgotha. God's righteous anger against all the bad things you think and say and do were all imputed to Christ and were judged by God in Christ. The guilt has been dealt with. It's all condemned. It is all gone. It is remembered no more. The fury of the Holy King of Heaven has been subdued when he sees the great sacrifice for sin that the Lamb of God has made. On Golgotha, justice in the proper condemnation of sins, our sin has triumphed in the death visited on the Prince of Life. He has voluntarily, freely given himself the word that was in the beginning with God was made flesh and died that death to make atonement for sin so that now we can have fellowship with him. I've spoken to him on your behalf. We've prayed to him, haven't we, this morning? And we've called him our Father in heaven. And we know that he loves us and he's caring for us, each one, and he's working for our good. Well, now, do you know that your guilt has been dealt with by the Lamb of God? That he's taken it all away so that now there is nothing impeding you being loved by God and you loving God in return. The second thing I want you to see is the honouring of the people of God. Enemy is punished, but that's in a sense negative. The majestic Royal rectitude has been displayed. But now where's the positive? Where's the honouring? Where's the vindication of the righteous? And you see it in three little acts. Firstly, the estate of Haman. The, the vast possessions of Haman. The rolling plantations along the Nile. The richest in the empire are all given to Esther. She doesn't have to live in the royal harem anymore. She can take her servants with her. Now she lives in this magnificent dwelling place. It becomes hers. And then secondly, the royal signet ring is taken from Xerxes' finger and it's given to Mordecai. And Esther makes Mordecai the manager of this great estate. And then thirdly, the dispatches announcing the slaughter of the people of God are all withdrawn. A new decree is written. It's signed in the king's name, with the king's signet, and there are 127 provinces, and they stretch all the way from India to near Ethiopia. That's where Cush is. And they're all written in the languages of the different people then that come from all those places, and the messengers take them on the fastest horses right through the land. We're told in, in verse 14, in chapter 8, they raced out spurred on by the king's command. And then they were given self, the right of self-defense. 
to protect themselves against those just wanting, looking for the chance to murder them all. And that night Mordecai, he left then the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, large crown of gold and purple robe of fine linen was on. He looked like one of the bards in the National Assembly. And the city of Susa erupted. There was great celebrations. Parties were held everywhere because of it. Good news. In fact, right at the very end of the, the book of Esther, Mordecai appears like a second Joseph in Egypt, like a second Daniel in Babylon. Because right at the end, uh, we are told Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. He seems to have been the greatest man. After Xerxes, he seems to have been the greatest man in the whole Persian Empire. The transformation happened all on one amazing day. It started in the small hours of that morning with the king tossing and turning, God taking his sleep from him and then deciding to read the government papers and discovering there how Mordecai had found out about the assassination plot and that he hadn't been rewarded for what he had done. And a few hours later, that same day, Xerxes asks Haman, what should be done to the man he desires to honor? And he'd arrived early that same day off on a mission, remember, to uh, ask the king to hang Mordecai from the 75 feet high gallows that he had set up. That was pushed to the back of his mind when the king wanted to honor someone. He thought of all the wonderful things, dressed in the king's robes, riding on the king's horse. A herald going before him to the city. That, that's right, the king says. That same day, you go and do that. To Mordecai, to Mordecai, the man he hated the most. That same day, he'd gone round the city shouting at the crossroads. This is what happens to the man the king honors. And he returned home that night. It was the worst day of his life and he complained to his wife but then they see the writing on the wall and they move away from him and uh, separate themselves from him and the judgment that's going to come that uh, hour later the king's servants come and they ask him to come to the banquet everything's ready and there he meets with Xerxes and Esther and then the unmasking of his plan for the Holocaust of the Jews is, is revealed. And he's led away and he is killed that same day. That same day Esther is given all his property. And uh, she reveals her relationship with Mordecai. And Mordecai is given the signet ring and he's placed over Esther's recently acquired estate. All that day and that night Mordecai goes out to a rejoicing, excited citadel. That day it all happened. That day. Aren't there days in history like that? Just a day. A day is a long time. Sometimes. A day when Hitler marches into Poland. A day when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. 9-11. When the 
planes are hijacked and thousands are killed at the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York. Haven't you had unforgettable days? The day you started work, your first day at work. The day you met your future spouse. The day you became a father or a mother. The day they diagnosed a serious illness and you gave you the news. The day you had the big operation. The day you were introduced to Jesus Christ. What a day that was. The Christian book you were given. The sermon you heard. The person you met. One of you gave me an account of the Christian apologist William Lane Craig who this month debated before 2,000 people in Westminster Central Hall in London with an atheist called Lewis Walpert. How did he become a Christian? Well, he was a student and it was a time in his life when students should ask, should ask the great questions. And there was a girl sitting in front of him in lectures and she had something he didn't have. She had a a peace, a radiance, a joy. And she told him she knew Jesus Christ as her personal saviour. And she told him, do you know that Jesus loves you? And he can become your saviour too. He never heard anything like it in his life before. Now he is a research professor of theology. And it all comes to that day when God put him in lecture and brought that girl in front of him. There was a much married woman in Sukkur in Samaria and she went one day to draw water from a well and she met there with Jesus Christ who told her everything she'd ever done. and She met the Messiah. And her life was changed that day. There was a day when an Ethiopian was going back to Africa and uh, he was reading the Bible and couldn't understand it and God sent a Christian to him to speak to him. Do you understand what you're reading? And that day changed his life and he was baptized that day and went on his way rejoicing. There was a day when a, a wretched, evil criminal was dying and there alongside him was another one who was so different from him. And he cried to him. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. What a day in his life he went out of the city of Jerusalem that morning, hooted at, mud was thrown, stones were thrown at this evil man, never to return to Jerusalem. That morning, that afternoon, he had dined with Jesus on Golgotha, and that night, oh, that night, he went into the city in all its glory and wonder in heaven, never to leave it again. It all happened that night, that morning, he was condemned by the courts of men and that night he was justified before the courts of heaven that day, it happened that day just that day a Scottish preacher went to see a dying woman he was asked to see her she was hungry to know the gospel and he explained it to her and clarified it and she received the Lord Jesus Christ into her heart he said I saw a miracle that day I met a woman and she was in a state of nature And then I told her about Jesus Christ and she came into a state of grace. And that night she died the same day she went into a state of glory. It happened one day, just one wonderful day. There was a a day, it was January the 6th, it was 1850. And a 15-year-old boy then couldn't walk in Colchester to church because of the snow. And so he slipped up the street 
to a little primitive Methodist church and there was a man deputizing for the regular preacher and he preached on look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else young man he said to the fifteen in the congregation seizing him and putting his eyes upon him young man you look very miserable and you'll always be miserable miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text, but if you obey my text this moment, you will be saved. That's what he said. Look. That's what you've got to do. You've got to look to Jesus Christ. Look at him living. Look at him dying. Look at him risen. Look at him exalted. Look at him. Look with faith at Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, he said. And he looked and he was saved. And many of you, you know that same experience when you looked away from yourself and you said, well, there's nothing here. There's no hero here who's going to save me. I must look at him. I must look at Christ. He alone can be my God and Savior. You looked to him and you became a, a new Christian. You became a new person. Oh, my friends, what a wonderful day. But to those who reject... There'll be an awful day. They'll start the day. It'll be a day of nature. A day of unbelief. And then that day Christ will come. And that day they will die. And they will enter an eternal state. A state of darkness. Of wailing. Of absence of all that is good and loving and holy and pure and joyful and peaceful. That day. Oh my friends. Look to Jesus Christ this day. Know what wonderful things can happen if this day you look to him, this wonderful day of vindication. The third thing I want you to see is the further triumph of the people of God in a number of ways. Firstly, in the evangelistic success that came. 8.17 of this book says many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So here were people, you see, who lived under Xerxes' power and authority, and they knew what power mighty Xerxes had when he declared war on the Greeks and all the able-bodied men was called up. And they couldn't protest that uh, they had married a wife or that they were looking after their aged parents. Off they went to battle in distant Macedonia, the laws of the Medes and the Persians do not change. And now a law has come out saying that at the end of the year all the Jews of the empire are to be massacred. But no, here's another law. Another law which is the very reverse. There's a 180 degree turn in the legislation. First a law to slaughter them all, and then days later a law not to slaughter them all. But the Jews had a right to slaughter those who were breathing out their threats and slaughters against them. What an amazing people they must be. What a God they must worship. This God, he's got King Xerxes' heart in his hands, and he can turn it like that for their good. Remember the judgment that came upon Ananias and his wife Sapphira in Acts 6 when their lives were taken away. And Luke tells us 
Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. More and more people believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The reverence and the godly fear that came upon the church of Jesus Christ was not a hindrance to evangelism, to church growth. It never is. It's an encouragement, an essential encouragement to church growth. If the fear of God fell upon this congregation, then, well, many people would be added to our numbers. And there would be a real change. in The, the only possibility of change in the community is the fear of the living God coming upon us. The second thing we see here is that the enemies of the Lord were removed. There were ruthless men still throughout the empire filled with hatred for the people of God who wouldn't sleep until they were all killed. And so here were the Jews. They weren't soldiers. They were businessmen. They were farmers. They were shopkeepers. And yet they were able to defend themselves and smite down their enemy. The people of God killed 75,000. Esther chapter 9 and verse 16. You remember that this is an Old Testament theocracy in which church and state, like is Islam, Church and state are one, so that if you, uh, you become a Christian, you give up the Islamic faith, you become a traitor to, to your country and go to prison for it. Israel then, at this time, was a theocracy. It was like that. Church and state were one. and uh, So they had real enemies around them that wanted to annihilate them. They had a real army that could defend them, defend their boundaries. Today the weapons of our warfare are they're not carnal, they are spiritual weapons, they are mighty through God. This is the great weapon, isn't it? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what God gives us. It just strikes us and smites us and cuts into our pride and cuts out the cancer of sin and points to Jesus Christ to look to him, that's the great weapon. Just as it was in the first century. It's the weapon God has given us. It's a mighty weapon. And our enemies are now the world and the flesh and the devil. 75,000 were slain. Well, no, that's not an impossible number, is it? When you think of the million that was killed in Rwanda. and Haman's uh, desire was that about half a million Jews should have been killed. That's probably the number in the land. 127 provinces. In Susa, we are told 800 of their enemies fell. So if there were 600 men in every, every one of the provinces who was out to just wipe out and stab and poison and kill men and women and children who were Jews, then that would account for the 75,000 Killed. An extra day is given to them so that all the enemies. It's interesting in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, 
of the Old Testament, it says 15,000, and no one knows why it says 15,000 and not 75. Isn't that strange? But it's certainly true, 15,000 were killed, but uh, Hebrew text tells us of 60,000 more than that who were killed. Not civil targets, you remember, armed aggressors, the jihad against the Jews, the murderous men that were intent on credo-cleansing, they were, they were destroyed. They were put to the sword. And there was no advantage taken of their possessions. You can see how that's emphasized. Chapter 9, verse 10, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Chapter 9, verse 15, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Chapter 9, verse 16, but they did not lay their hands on on the plunder. They could have. They were given legal rights. The new law said, chapter 8, verse 11, plunder the property of their enemies. But they wouldn't plunder. Because here was a principle. Their liberty, their existence, their right to evangelize, to live and work here, to be light and salt in Babylon. It wasn't some fake hatred that they really had a secret intention in the murder of, of taking, taking, taking stuff from the Amalekites. Then you will notice that the ten bodies of Haman were hung up in Susa. Esther requested it. The king authorized it. It was a public warning in the citadel to the population. No one must harm the Jews again. The king and queen were adamant. Anti-Jehovahism would not be tolerated, ruled out of the land. Would you have had thousands of the bodies of the Jews piled up in the marketplaces and on the street crossings? Was it fair to have the last moments of Saddam Hussein recorded so that the people could see? He is over. He is finished. He is dead. He is not in a secret place, still alive. He is dead. If uh, Adolf Hitler had been hung outside the gas chambers of Auschwitz, who, who would have said, oh, that's an unfair end to that evil man? These 75,000 were the descendants of Amalek, of whom God swore, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Exodus 17, 14, 15 and 16. How will God view those who are at enmity against him? Stubborn. Defiant. Godless even when they see him. Would not such men and women rather have an end on the gallows than the place where the worm dies not and the worm is not quenched, the fires are not quenched? Just as death did not end Haman's sons, death is not the end for the godless. It's, there's a judgment after it which makes hanging desirable. See, if you let your human emotions um, dominate you when you come to the Bible, 
and the clear message here of justice and judgment which is here in the Bible if, if, if you allow an unbelieving spirit to challenge what the word of God is saying to you now the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be compromised because God's own perfect son was hung up not when he was dead but while he was alive until he was dead. And not by something as kind and swift as a rope around his neck, breaking his neck or strangling him, but by cruel metal spikes, not given to a deserving enemy, but to the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, blameless Lamb of God, who went about doing good, the lovely one, the perfect one, Jesus Christ, standing in the place of his enemies, paying the debt his enemies could not pay because he loved them. And so if you are uneasy about what happened then in Susa and in Babylon, look at Golgotha. Lest you deny then final and ultimate justice, which is what hell is. If hell is denied, then the cross of Jesus Christ is emptied of its purpose. Why would the eternal Son of God, the creator of this vast universe, give himself in death in the anathema of the cross? If there wasn't a judgment on sin, that we should, must be delivered from. Thirdly, the event was forever commemorated. Okay, verses 27 and 28, we're told that the Jews took it on themselves. Chapter 9, this is to establish the custom, and they all joined two days every year, like Christmas Day and Boxing Day then, and there was a, a time every year, every family, every province, every city, these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews. The memory of them shouldn't die out among their descendants. It's commemorated even today then. Um, in synagogues, this is the day when these uh, 11 chapters are read out. And um, people then, um, when, yeah, these 10 chapters, <laughs> when um, Mordecai's name is mentioned, people then cheer. And when Haman's name is mentioned, there's hissing and booing. There are little rattles uh, that make a sort of whirring, grinding noise. That whenever Mordecai, whenever Haman's name, and then special gifts are given then to friends and to the poor people. Every Sunday we meet. Why do we meet every Sunday? Because it's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. The first day of the week they met. And he met with them and spoke peace to them. The first day of the week our Saviour rose. And always we meet with a living Christ. Because death, our last enemy, has been destroyed. And we say, he rose, he lives, our Jesus, he lives. And every Sunday we just grasp that reality again by meeting with him. As he comes into the presence of, uh, of the people of God. All right? 
my fourth and final point are the, the, the great lessons of this book. And the first lesson is what great wonders are accomplished without miracles. The world loves, of course, its, its amazing events. The Jews demand miraculous signs. There's an itch to go to meetings where men will perform miracles. Richard Dawkins says that if he could see a substantial miracle whose only explanation was a work of God, he'd become a believer. He, he can look at Jesus and, and read his life and see everything that he, that he did and hear everything that he said. And uh, He can't believe in God. The proof of the existence of God is the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his miraculous presence. And this book then, this book, um, inspired by God, the word of God, that's the miracle. That's present in every gospel congregation that honors it. And the, the climax of it is to hear what God says in his word. That's the miracle that gives us faith and cheers us and strengthens us to live Christ-like lives in an evil world. That's the miracle. But I don't see God just in the stilling of the, of the tempest or um, in the floating outset or in the sun standing still or the opening of the Red Sea. There's something very rough about that. But uh, here in the book of Esther, God just lets things go on in their usual way, doesn't he? In the normal way and then. He does this and he does that. He gives ambition and thought and mind and desire. They're full liberty. And he saves the people. And he destroys their enemies. And we, that happens this week. We look at Iraq and we look at Afghanistan. We look at a, a new prime minister soon that they'll be in the UK. We look at the church in China and the spread of AIDS in the world and North Korea and South Korea. And we see God at work. We look back through our lives and we see the hand of God moving in mysterious ways to perform his wonders to us. We see it. Not miracles. Not miracles. Wonderful things. God does. The wonders of his providence. And then secondly in this book, how safe are the people of God? How safe a particular gospel congregation is? A chance we think it's out of control and that there are forces outside that are going to hurt and tear. There are times when the people of God thought, oh, Haman's got it all. He's in control. He's going to wipe us out. There was some occasion when Nero said he wished all his enemies had one neck and he could destroy them all with one blow. That's what they like to do. One blow and all their problems are solved. Here's Haman. He's calling all the shots. And yet the people of God are delivered. There's not a mention of one single Old Testament Christian being hurt. In the book of Esther. If God has built a bruised reed, nothing in the world can destroy it. 
If God has lit a smoking flux, all the devils in hell cannot quench it. The weakest lamb in the flock of Christ can't be snatched out of God's hands. The third thing we learn here is that the wicked will come to a certain end. You see that? If you see anything, the great message of warning is that. You think of the power structures of Britain today. The media, education, the business city of London, the government, the unions, the publishers, the world of sport and entertainment and so on. So few among them promoting gospel values, encouraging the teaching of the Bible. Such disdain towards our Saviour. And we are so few. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of them. All of us. No escape. No one slipping away. No one crying to the rocks and the mountains to hide them. Not one. All to give an account. All to get a scrupulously fair judgment. Because this is a moral universe in which you live. So cease your opposition. Hear the word of the gospel that says confess your sin and forsake it and believe in Jesus Christ and you should be saved. And lastly we have a guardian so near the throne, don't we? The people of Persia, they discover we've got a friend in high places. We have someone who has the ear of the mighty king close to his heart. Touch with the feeling of our infirmities. Bone of our bone. Flesh of our flesh. Living to intercede and protect us. What joy came to them. What safety they felt. And so it is with us. But oh, ten thousand times more than the, the people of Susa. We have a saviour, Jesus Christ. And he is at the Father's side the man of love, the crucified, how safe are his people if any man sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And our advocate pleads for us. He says, oh Father, I know what dangers surround a congregation now and protect, protect and keep them. I know that the, that woman is battling with a bad depression. Oh Lord, help her now. Send the spirit of peace into her heart and oh this student has a broken heart oh you can heal the broken heart father send a spirit of comfort to them father build high impregnable walls of salvation keeping thy people and he does he, he whispers half place Jeff Thomas your name in the ears of the great loving God of heaven saves us to the uttermost when we come to God by him. Heaven and earth will pass away sooner than any, any of God's promises will pass away. We shall not be ashamed nor confounded. Will without end. Amen. Lord bless thy word to us now and do us good by it and teach us not only a God of justice, a God who vindicates, the God who saves and protects.
grant that mercy to us, we pray, the comfort that it brings, and build us up and keep us, and the lessons that we've learned from this book over these past five occasions. May they produce fruit so that we are not just hearers, but doers of thy great word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.